All right, I'm going to welcome you back here. Roger, do you have any duck eggs today? Well, my wife ate them all before I could, so. All right, okay, all right. Hey, we welcome you back, and uh, I want to keep things kind of moving today because I want to get you on. I know you guys maybe have plans and stuff today. All right, I'm going to give away a couple books today, and it's actually, uh, my message is kind of, it's obviously based on the Word of God, but it is also based on a book. It came out last year. It was actually highlighted on Good Morning America, I believe, on ABC, um, if that's the one that does the morning show. It was ABC, I'm pretty sure. And it, uh, the, the guy that wrote it is uh, where my youngest son, Daniel, uh, attends church. Him and his wife go there. Uh, in Springfield, Missouri. It's about a church about our size, maybe a little bit bigger, but they church plant a few years old. They are meeting in a Christian school, uh, so they don't have their own building or anything like that, but he's a, he's a good writer. So he calls it the five masculine instincts. So I'm going to give one away here. Um, this slogan, okay, men, it has to be a man, okay, and I'd prefer you say that you would read the book. All right, so raise your hand quickly. I'm going to say this slogan, and then you raise your hand if you know what it is, okay? The slogan is, the best a man can be. What, what company? It was a company. It was a company. They sell men's product. It used to be the best a man can get, and then they switched it to a best a man can be. All right, there we go. It sounds like Gillette, but you said it wrong. Yeah. Yeah, so they, it was the best a man can get, and then they switched it at the Super Bowl to the best a man can be, and they got a lot of flack from the women's movements, and uh, just because there again, there's this kind of this undercurrent um, for uh, men in leadership and spiritual leadership. So, all right, all right, men, you want a book? Raise your hand. You want the book? You'd read it. Raise your hand. Raise your hand. Okay, one, one, between a num- one and a hundred. Give me a. Okay, all right. I'm gonna get my number. Okay, I got it. Okay. 27, 52, 50, 25, 13, 14. Anybody else? Who is the closest to number one? 13, yeah. Yeah, it was number one, yeah. Because dads are number one. All right, because dads are number one. That, by the way, is my, our oldest son, Aaron, so thanks for driving down today and um, joining us on Father's Day, so good to have him here. All right, I am, we're going to jump in here, and because uh, I want to get you out on time, and otherwise I'm going to have two Amys that will be giving me the look afterwards, so. <laughs> all right, one my wife, and all right. You know, um, so I'm going to base some of the thoughts on this book. It's called Five Masculine Instincts. The premise of the book is Shakespeare talked about stages that a man will go through, ages within a man's time period, okay? Kind of in a theatrical sense a little bit, Shakespeare. Um, And so it's based upon these five instincts that he saw. They're kind of age-based. In other words, when we're younger, we deal with sarcasm. When we're older, we'll deal with apathy, okay? These instincts um, that happen. 
So our culture, I believe, is attacking masculinity and even deconstructing it due to some toxic stereotypes, sometimes associated with men. They're too aggressive. They're competitive. They're stoic. Or they're domineering, right? And that sometimes is the case, okay? I'm not going to deal... But I don't believe that's God's picture, his biblical model, model. So here's the deal. Men are unique, just as women are unique. Men like meat. How many agree with that? We like meat. In fact, they did a study where they gave these guys false results on that they weren't as masculine as they thought they were. And then they had to make pizzas and they could do veggies and meat. The guys that had their masculinity questioned put a bunch of more meat on their pizza because meat makes guys feel more masculine. Do you believe it? We eat 57% more meat than women. All right, there you go. There's the data. We like adventure. We like fires. So I was watching these little boys and there's these fire pits out and parents, you can close your ears. Um, but they're, they're the boys, right? The boys, they see the fire and there they are. They're running their hand through the fire, you know, or they're getting a twig. They can find a twig, putting it on fire. Boys just like fire, Right? They like to do that, kind of like, uh, you know, we're passionate about our pursuits, sometimes too passionate, right? We like power tools, right? All right. All right. So Shakespeare had these five instincts that we process through the different ages, times. There's no specific ages, but sarcasm would be the first, adventure, ambition, reputation, and apathy. So we're going to unpack these really quickly and look at these and through a biblical light to men that struggled with these instincts and how we can balance them out in our own lives. Amen? So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, I pray, just invite your presence here, Lord God, and for your, us to hear from you in these moments we have. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. The first instinct that I want us to look at is the instinct of sarcasm. All right, any of you been known as being sarcastic? All right. Um, that is the first instinct. It is, comes with, it's called the humor of our age. As often as when we are younger, we have that sarcasm in us. We often resort to sarcasm when we are in a place of weakness. And we can't control the results, so we use humor to disguise our insecurity. Wow. A little bit of uh, psychology there, maybe. We see sarcasm in the life of Cain. Remember Cain? Cain and Abel, the first two men, young men in, in, that we see in Scripture, right? Adam and Eve give birth to these young men. Um, but we see it in, in Cain. We see that sarcasm. So let's look at the story, Genesis 4, 4 through 8. Chris is going to have those up on there. But they bring, they're bringing sacrifices to God to worship God. Abel brought an offering, the fat portion, some of his firstborn of his flock. And the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. Okay, we aren't given the details while Abel's sacrifice was better than Cain's. All right, Cain brought some, I believe, a grain offering. Uh, it doesn't say that it was his first fruits or the best. Uh, maybe that was the issue. We, we aren't told, all right? But it appears that Cain knows the reason. Then Cain's, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? He's sulking. Because God point, said, hey, your, your, your offering wasn't acceptable, so he's pouting. If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. That's, just, that's a powerful passage, passage there. 
And now Cain said to his brother Abel, hey, let's go out to the field. And while they were out in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and, and he killed him. And then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? And here comes the sarcasm. I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? See the sarcasm there? Am I my brother's keeper? Sarcasm will hold us back from the divine lesson and from the opportunity God has given us to mature by taking on responsibility for our own actions. See, sarcasm wants to blame it on other people and not own up to our own mistakes and who we are. Cain ignored the lesson, instead indulged the anger he felt, and he opened up the door for sin, crouching outside his door. And he would have his sentence, he would have this mark on him for the rest of his life. But maturity begins by taking responsibility for who we are now. Okay, Submitting to that divine lesson when God speaks to us through his word, or through other people, godly people, we own up to our mistakes, who we are, and we learn. Now, we can only do that if we have some humility in our life, right? Humility, seeking a path forward to something better. So the way we respond to the instinct of sarcasm is to acknowledge, that's the first way to acknowledge our inadequacies, which comes with humility. Humility isn't the absence of pride. Okay, Sometimes there's a false humility that people have. But humility is understanding that I, I have inadequacies. I need to grow. There's things that I don't know. Maybe there's even matru- immaturity there that I need to own up to and grow. We submit to God and not think more of ourselves than we should. The second thing, hum- we need humility, but we also need meekness. Now, m- meekness is one of those things that I think is highly misunderstood because meekness is not weakness. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Meekness is, is control. It's self-discipline. Um, and so we use meekness when somebody punches us and we could retaliate. Instead, we keep our cool. Now, I'm not talking about there is a place that we need to defend ourselves, okay? So I'm not talking about that. But there's those times that we want to retaliate, whether it's with words or with fists, meek person understands, you know what, I may have the power to retaliate and even win, but I don't need to prove myself to show that I am better. Meekness is having is that self-control that we display in our own life. So our youngest son was working at a lavender farm in Springfield yesterday. And it, it's a beautiful, I guess it must be a beautiful farm. So people like to come out there not only to buy lavender and stuff, but they want to take pictures out there, right? So they allow people to take pictures, but they charge them $150, you know, so, you know, because otherwise they'd probably be inundated with all these people. And they charge them $150 if they want to take wedding pictures, engagement pictures, whatever the case may be. And so somebody was doing that, and they didn't pay the fee. And so Daniel got elected to go out there and talk with them. So... He went out there and tried to talk with them. And I think here's the thing. I think these people were even Christian people. But, ooh, they, they were throwing him the wicked. <laughs> they, were, they were giving him some good words. They called him abrasive. And, and you know, if you know Daniel, that's probably not him. But he kind of stuck. But he, he, I called him right after that. And he's just kind of, you know, you could tell he wanted to retaliate, right? But he, he did the right thing. But he wanted to, you right? He wanted to probably say some words and get back at him. And uh, he handled it well, but he was still trying to process that. Meekness is 
when you realize you have the power to retaliate and even win and destroy somebody, but you chose to hold back, that's meekness. All right? For a man to be the best he can be, here's the principle. Principle number one. For a man to be the best he can be, he must recognize the instinct of sarcasm in his life, but also recognize his need for humility and meekness. Humility and, and meekness are things that are godly virtues that we need to grow into that help counter sarcasm in our life. Amen? Number two, the instinct of adventure. Men like to explore, right? We like to go out there. Not that women, some women don't. But, that, you know, that just kind of seems to be a pretty natural instinct for men. But, and we're going to look at the life of Samson, right? Samson, right? Samson. So man's quest for adventure is, is to discover who he really is, all right? And we see this in the life of, of Samson. He was born with a purpose. He was to be a deliverer of Israel. He is one of the judges. If you read the book of Judges, he is one of the judges. He was raised with Nazarite vows. He wasn't to touch anything dead. He, wasn't to he was never to taste alcohol. He was never to cut his hair, all right? So long hair is coming back in. I was watching the College World Series last night. Long hair is coming back in, especially for pitchers, all right? All right. But as he became, as Samson became a young adult, the strict restrictions of youth kind of chafed against him. He wanted to get out and explore. He wanted to see all that was out there. Just beyond the hillside was the Philistine territory, the Mediterranean Sea. There was wine. There was beautiful women. Stuff he had not been able to see. He wanted to go out and explore the world. This is what Judges 14, 1-7 says. Samson went down to Timnah. So this is down on the, the, probably a hillside leaning down to the Mediterranean Sea. And uh, it's also wine country. And he saw, okay, underline that word, he saw what? A Philistine woman. Probably not the first time he saw a woman, but this... He saw a Philistine woman, and he returned, and he said to his father, and says, I have seen a Philistine woman in Timnah. Now get her for me as a wife. There was something about her that he liked, very attractive to him. His father and mother replied, Isn't there some acceptable woman among the relatives or our people? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife? But Samson insisted. He said to his father, Get her for me. She is the right one for me. Verse 5. So Samson went down to Timnah with his father and mother. And as he approached the vineyards of Timnah, suddenly a young lion came out towards him. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him powerfully, so much so that he tore a young lion apart with his bare hands, as if he had torn a young goat. Imagine that. Tearing a lion apart with your bare hands. No sword, no weapon, just his bare hands. But he told neither his father or his mother. He'd return there, find the lion when there's honey in there. So he'd break one of his Nazarite vows. He'd touch something dead. And then he went down, talked to the woman. He liked her. While Samson was physically strong, so this is where we're going to deviate from Scripture here. Well, I'll just kind of. While Samson was physically strong, he was able to tear a lion apart with his bare hands. His weakness lied in his what? In his eyes, right? What he saw. He saw things, he desired things with his eyes, and he says, I want them. And so he wanted this woman that ended up not working out because the Philistines kind of messed it up, and uh, he ended up killing a bunch of them. I think just with a jawbone one day. 
He desired things that he saw, and one day he would end up in a prostitute's arms. Her name was Delilah, right? And in one of those moments, he would give away the secret of his strength. He didn't even know that the Lord had left him and that the power had left. And when he was finally captured, they plucked out his what? Isn't that interesting? It were his eyes that were his weakness, and it was his eyes that were plucked out. And he'd be forced to grind at this mill, pushing this thing along day after day, blinded. But it says that his hair would begin to grow. And one day he cried out to God. He was placed between two pillars. A great feast was being thrown by the Philistines. They were worshiping their gods. And he was placed, there was an upper deck above, and he was placed between the two main support pillars. And he said, God, one more time, show me your favor. And hear my prayer. And God did. With his bare hands and arms, he pushed in those pillars. The building collapsed. More people were killed in that act of sacrifice than were killed up to that point in his lifetime. Obviously, his life was lost as well. Samson's story is, a, is about the realization that our heart's desires and our instinct for adventure will eventually betray you. They'll betray you. Your eyes will betray you. What we often think we need is often wrong. I need this, right? We think, I need this, I need this, I need this, and we get it, and it's kind of like, well, that's nice for a little bit. Now I want something else, right? Our heart and our eyes will betray us. Thus, we need God's discernment. Adventure, we need to hear this. Adventure can cost you your better commitments, your commitments to your marriage, to your children, to your career, even to God. We need to ask God for new eyes and a new heart to see the adventure God already has before us. This is from the book, You'll Never Find the Adventure You're Looking For Until You Learn to Commit to the One You're Already In. When you do, the world will explode in senses of the Spirit's work. God's hand becomes apparent in every tucked away corner of your life. True adventure is here, recognizing the story God has placed in you. The problem is we lack, it's not a lack of adventure, the problem is a lack of discernment for recognizing it. That's good stuff, folks. So the second point is to be the best a man can be. And women, you can take this in. There's some of this applies to you as well. You must recognize our instinct for adventure, but also recognize our need for discernment and commitment. Commitment is a good thing. You know, and, and that's one of the things during COVID, the commitment went this way within the church, but also in work and other things. Commitment isn't a dirty word. It, we, we, that is, we make the, our wedding vow, right, that we're going to be faithful to love. We need those commitments in our life, and they help anchor us and give us stability in our life. All right? Number three, ambition. We're going to look at the life of Moses and ambition. Ambition is a quest for more. It's a life-saving medicine. Why do I say that? Well, if you have too much ambition, it'll kill you. If you have too little ambition, it will kill you because you're going to be too lazy, right? But if you have just enough, 
It'll preserve your life. Ambition is a way of leading us, it has a way of leading us to two extremes. Either it will consume us, our ambitions will consume us, and we make, it'll make us feel like we have unlimited potential. We can do anything we want to do. Or it can cause the other thing that we fail in our ambitions, and then it becomes our accuser and it mocks us, and it causes us to have unbelief in our heart. But between that extreme of consuming us and the extreme of disbelief is confusion. That's where a lot of us wrestle with. We have these ambitions and sometimes they don't go the way we want to or try to figure it out, and so we experience confusion. Ambition aids men in godly pursuits, but how to handle it? Well, one must master it and acquire the skills necessary to recognize its destructive tendencies or risk being lost in the maze of twisting emotions and desires. Ambition is confusing. And so we have, ambition is good, but we have to there again have that discernment and ability to manage that. So how many like philosophy? We have any philosophers there? All right. Kierkegaard is a great philosopher. He said, the proud person always wants to do the right thing, the great thing. But because he wants to do it in his own strength, he finds himself fighting not with man, but with God. Uh, there's some good, good things to think on there. So let's look at Moses. Do we see ambition there? Yeah, we see it at it. We, great story, right? Moses is rescued as a young age. He's born. They're killing all the Hebrew babies. His life is spared. Mom puts him in a raft, right? Picked up by Pharaoh's daughter. He's raised in Pharaoh's household. He probably has one of the best educations in the world at that time. And then he gets to be a young adult, and he sees some of his uh, Hebrew brother of his being mistreated by an Egyptian and there's something that stirs within him so that ambition was taking place and so what does he do he goes out and he kills the Egyptian right he thinks nobody sees it tries to do it in his own power he thinks nobody sees it but it all of a sudden it comes out the word gets out of what Moses did and so he flees for his life for 40 years he would live in the wilderness of Midian he'd find a wife he would be a shepherd of sheep and that's probably where he would have lived out his life until one day a burning bush spoke to him, right? And God speaks to him out of the burning bush and says, I'm going to call you back to Egypt to deliver my people. And Moses would follow God. But he still wrestled with this idea of ambition. His ambition would lead him to great achievements, right? Leading through the people of God through the Red Sea. Wow, isn't that pretty cool? But it would also lead him to sorrow, to self-pity, to pride, to anger, to frustration. One of those moments of frustration is God had provided water out of the rock once, right? Fed all these people water. But the second time God asked him to do it, God says, speak to the rock. But Moses was angry, right? He was frustrated with the people. And maybe by that point, he kind of figured, you know, it's all about me. Instead of speaking to the rock, he did what? He struck the rock. The water did come forth, but Moses would lose his opportunity to walk into the promised land when they eventually got there. He would be taken up to his mount, a mountain. He would die there. He would be able to see it, but he would not be able to enter it until he went into eternity. Moses had 
the difficulty of separating his ability from God's, from God's work, from his work. And I, I find this as a minister sometimes. That, that's a tough one sometimes. What's my work and what's God's work? How do we deal with ambition? How do we keep ambition in check? It comes through resting. You say, resting? Yeah, it's called the Sabbath day. But I'm too busy to, I got too much going on. I can't take a break, right? Really. God put the Sabbath there not for himself, for a rule for us to keep. He put it there for you and I. And maybe even to keep our ambition in check. He says in Exodus 33:14, the Lord replied, My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. The Sabbath rest is a way that we trust God with our plans. The Sabbath and rest is always a way to test our inordinate ambition within our life. That's good, folks. If you can't get it done in six days, you're probably not going to get it done in seven. And you're probably trying to do it in your own strength and saying, God, here it is. I give it to you. So that third principle is to be the best man that you can be. You must recognize your instinct for ambition and recognize your need for rest. It's good for you, good for your family. Amen? Um, growing up, man, my folks were pretty strict on that. You know, we'd go to church on Sundays, and I couldn't even go out and shoot gophers or go fishing on Sunday. I think that was too strict. That To me, that wasn't work. That's getting away. They, they've moderated on that, but... Um, they moderated on that. But, you know, I, I do appreciate that idea of, of taking that break. All right, number four. Let's look at the instinct of reputation. This one kind of hit me kind of hard as well in the life of David. Reputation um, has to do with us maintaining our appearance on the outside. That, as we get a little bit older in life, that becomes, we want to protect our reputation. You know, David is often known as a man after God's own heart. How can that be, though? He was an adulterer, right? He was a murderer, and he disobeyed God in other ways. A lot of people lost their life because he did, a, he did this census that displeased God, and thousands of people lost their life by this death angel that came through. Innocent people. So how could a man that had done all those bad things be a man after God's own heart? I think the older we get, the instinct to protect our reputation becomes stronger. But reputation is what people see on the surface, right? But God knows our heart. He knows our secrets and who we really are. You know, we're sometimes afraid to share our secrets with God, right? He knows them already, right? So we're really not keeping them a secret from him. But here's the deal. When David was confronted with his sin, he did not hide. Rather, he confessed his sins. In fact, when he sinned with Bathsheba, God called Nathan the prophet come to his house. And Nathan gave him the story about this rich man that took a sheep from a poor family and took it and ate it. You know, just kind of this story. And David being the shepherd, just says, he's just like, I'm going to kill that man. 
That was just so wrong to take that sheep, that pet sheep from that poor family, and then they ate it. I mean, he's just livid. And then Nathan looks at him and says, you're the man. You know, we can be pretty blind to our sin and the things that are happening in our lives. We have blind spots. And David would confess his sin to God. Psalms 51 is that confession, if you want to look at that later. But in another story, the Ark of the Covenant had um, become captive in Philistine uh, land. And one of the stories, Dan, that I, I still remember, we had Bethany, your sister, and she talked about the Philistines. And because they had the Ark of the Covenant in their, in their possession, they all got what? Something broke out on them. Tumors, right? She actually brought these tumors. Well, they were tinfoil tumors, I think, or something like that. Uh, she illustrated it for us, so I still remember that. But the Philistines says, hey, we don't want the Ark of the Covenant. This is bad for us. So they, they put it on a cart just as Scripture had told them to. They figured it out, and they sent it back to the Israelites. David is trying to bring it back. He doesn't bring it back appropriately. This should have been carried, not on a cart. A man, an innocent man reaches out to, to stabilize it. Boom, he's just like a lightning bolt hits him. He's dead. David was upset, but then he goes back to Scripture and says, okay, this is the right way to do it, and they bring it into Jerusalem, and he's excited. And when the Ark of the Covenant is coming in, he has his, his tunic on, and, and he wants to dance before God because he's so excited. That's who David was. He tucks it into his belt, and he dances away. But his wife, Michael, who was Saul's daughter that he married, was watching from up above. And it says she despised seeing David like that. Why? Because he had his legs, his white legs being exposed. Who knows what else? It didn't seem very kingly. He wasn't protecting his reputation in her eyes. So 2 Samuel 6, 20-22 says, When David returned home to bless his household, Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and says, How the king of Israel distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants, as any vulgar fellow would. You weren't very kingly out there today, my husband. She was upset. And David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father. You know, Saul was chosen because he was good looking, he was tall, head and shoulders above everybody else. But you remember when, when David was anointed king, he, Samuel the prophet says, you know, God does, doesn't look at outward appearance. He looks at the, at the heart. God chose me above your father. I will celebrate before the Lord, verse 22. I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls who you spoke of, I will be held in honor. You know, we try to protect ourselves. We try to put that best foot forward. We try to look good on the outside with avoiding what's on the inside. And David, so to speak, kind of let it all hang out. He just wanted to worship God with all that he had. He didn't care what other people thought of him or how they looked at him. All he cared about was worshiping his God. There's something that is very real about that. He wasn't afraid of who he was. I think that's why... God, Scripture says that he was a man after his own heart. He wasn't perfect. None of us are. 
But he wasn't afraid to come before God and just say, hey, this is who I am. And he wasn't even afraid to come before other people and say, who, this is who I am. This is what Diedrich Bonhoeffer wrote. He's with the Lord. He, he was a Christian man, a pastor, during the time of World War II when Hitler was uh, doing his, um, his thing. So many Jews and, and people lost their lives. And, and Bonhoeffer realized it. And the issue was that a lot of the churches in Germany went along with Hitler's schemes. They went along with it. They didn't stand up. But Bonhoeffer, Bonhoeffer was actually in America. He had escaped, but he chose to go back to Germany because he, was, he realized something had to be done about it. And he even plotted a, a, a plan to assassinate Hitler and kill him, and it was discovered, and he would ex- end up being executed just days before Hitler would take his own life. But this is what he wrote about the church. He says, Though they have fellowship with one another as believers and as devout people, they do not have fellowship as the undevout and as sinners. The pious fellowship permits no one to be a sinner. So everybody must conceal his sin from himself and from, from the fellowship. We dare not be sinners. And many Christians are unthinkably horrified when a real sinner is suddenly discovered among the righteous. And so we remain alone with our sin, living lies and hypocrisy. Think of that on a Sunday morning. We put on, we look good when we come in on a church. We don't come in with the sins that we've committed throughout the week, right? Why? We want, we want, to, we want to protect our reputation. How can we be the best that we can be by recognizing our instinct for reputation and recognize our need for honesty and integrity? All right, let's look at the last one and bring it home. Last one is the instinct of apathy. We're going to look at the life of Abraham. Abraham was a life of faith, wasn't he? God called him. Abraham didn't know God. He came from a polytheistic nation. He had no reference for who God is. God speaks to him and says, I want you to go to a land that I show you. And so Abraham says, okay, I'll go. He has faith from the very get-go. And God would develop his faith over the years. He would grow in faith. And he says, I'm going to make your descendants as vast as the stars in the sky and the sand in the desert. Now, there's just one problem. Abraham and Sarah had no children, had no son. Now, Abraham tried to do it on his own, right? And slept with... uh, Sarah's assistant, Hagar, servant. They have a child, Ishmael, but that wasn't God's plan. And finally, when they could have children no longer, they were too old, they were past the childbearing years, God gives them a son, Isaac, whose name means laughter. Isaac is born, life was good, I can kick back and I can enjoy life. So this apathy usually hits us in our older years. Retirement, 65. There's no specific day. But we've, we've, we've walked by faith. We've lived our life. Now it's time to enjoy what we've worked hard for. And Abraham probably hoped to finish his years in peace and quiet, watching his family grow. But God had other plans. Genesis 22, 2. Then God says, now I want you to take your son, maybe 14, 16 years old, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. And I want you to go to the region of Moriah, And I want you to sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain I will show you. What? 
I'm done walking by faith. Right? You ever been through in a valley in your life and you, God leads you and you put out all that faith and it's kind of, wow, God provided, we worship God, we're thankful. It's kind of, I'm glad I never have to do that again. I, I said that when, yeah, we moved here and then God says, yep, walk by faith. Abraham had a choice to obey or disobey. Abraham acts by faith and thus sees the faithfulness of God, right? He's about ready to plunge the knife. God speaks. There's a ram in the thicket. That's where we get Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. And on the mount of the Lord, the God will provide. Amen? Great story. I bet most of us don't want to be put in that place, though, to trust God. This is what the author says of the book. The test was never about a grade, getting a grade, but it was about the possibility of living what he had long believed. You know, he was that man of faith. It was an opportunity to receive an, an even greater testimony of God's faithfulness. Biblical faith is always proved through sacrifice. It's good, folks. Sacrifice forces us out of our complacency and apathy and always in ways receiving tends not to. This is what C.S. Lewis writes. Uh, he talks about the risk and the complexity of love. He says, to love at all is to be vulnerable. So if you're going to love anything, anyone, you're putting yourself in a vulnerable position. Love anything in your heart will clearly be wrung out and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Karen, all right. Wrap it up carefully round hobbies and little luxuries, but avoid entanglements. Lock it up safe in a casket or coffin of your selfishness. Put it in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, and it will change. It will not be broken. Instead, it will become unbreakable, impenetrable, and irredeemable. See, to love means your heart's going to be broken. It's going to be hurt. It takes sacrifice. Left to our own instinct for apathy, we disengage and we risk the very things that we care about most, the things tempting us in the latter years of life. It was never Isaac's life that was really at stake, the author says. It was always Abraham's life of faith that was at stake. So what the author says, the greatest risk to our faith is probably isn't you abandoning it, but that it will grow lifeless and still as you find ways to escape the complexity of what you currently face. The sacrifices you want to avoid are the gifts you need most. The sacrifice never really actually costs you. It opens the door to a bigger world. It stretches you and equips you with a greater capacity to receive from God. To sacrifice is to live, and it's always worth it. The last principle, I'm going to have the musicians come. To be the best man or the best person you can be, you must recognize your instinct for apathy, but also recognize your need for sacrifice. You know, you could re look through the Bible. Is there a perfect man in the Bible? No? Oh, Jesus. Man, he always breaks the test, doesn't he? Who's that other guy? Methuselah. He walked with God.
Elijah. Elijah. Maybe, I don't know. Enoch walked with God and was not. Yeah. Oh. Methuselah. Yeah, he lived to be a good old age. Yeah. But there's Jesus. Think about it. So I've listed these divine virtues. We've talked about humility. Jesus came, and it says in Philippians, he humbled himself, became a servant, clothed himself in flesh and lived amongst us. Jesus had humility, didn't he? Meekness. As he went to the cross or even in the Garden of Gethsemane, he could have called 10,000 angels. He He had the power to crush his enemies. But he went as a lamb to the slaughter. He displayed meekness, strength under control. He had discernment in all his relationships. He explored. He did great things, but he also had discernment. He had commitment to his father. He says, Father, if you can take this from me, do it. But not my will, but your will be done. He was committed to the father. He's committed to you and I. It was for the joy set before him, our salvation, that he had endured the cross. He had integrity in all his relationships. You know, as busy as Jesus was, all the people to heal and save, surely he didn't take a day to rest, but he did, didn't he? He took his rest. And lastly, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He wasn't afraid of sacrifice even though it cost him his life. A few things in life are more rewarding than learning to discover a world beyond our own instincts, a world of Christ's better way. I think our world wants to see men that just have those Christ-like virtues in their own life, humility, meekness, discernment, contentment, integrity, rest, and sacrifice. Men of this caliber just don't happen. They're found as they're transformed by God and His mighty Holy Spirit. Amen? This is my last quote. It is the gospel that gives you the security to embrace a self-suspicion necessary to overcome your immaturity and your sarcasm. It is the gospel that offers you a better adventure through deep commitments and discernment. It is the gospel that checks your ambition and teaches you to receive what you can't achieve by setting down your own expectations and learning to rest. It is the gospel that exposes your pretending and teaches you the value of integrity over defending your reputation. And it is the gospel that keeps you engaged with the story of sacrifice and grace, rescuing you from your own apathy and pulling you back into a life of faith. Amen. Would you stand this morning? Goals to be done at 11.15. I did it, Chris. All right. Lord, this morning we come to you, broken people. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And If we don't have a faith relationship with you, we've never put our faith and trust in you. We don't know what it is to have our sins forgiven. You said, if we come, if we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, we will be saved. We'll have the hope of heaven and 
As we invite you in to be the Lord of our life, you'll guide and direct us. You'll change and transform us. We'll become a new creation in you. And if that's anybody listening this morning on our live stream or just here, Lord God, if we make that our prayer, you'll come in into our life. Today could be our day of salvation. And Lord God, I pray for each one here, and I pray especially for our men. God, there's not one of us here that are perfect. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short. We've, we've even hurt the people sometimes that we love. But Lord God, as we walk in humility, as we walk with an integrity and meekness, sacrifice, God, you can change us and transform us. We can be the best that we can be for our families, for our wives, for our church, and for our nation, and for you, above all, for you. And so, Lord God, I just, I just pray a special blessing over our men, over our fathers, over our grandfathers. Lord, just let your blessing be upon each of us today. We need your help. We need your power. We need your Holy Spirit. We give you thanks. Amen. Guys, but if that's your prayer this morning, saying, God, I want you to be, I need you, God, this morning. Would you just raise that hand and just as a, a sign to him, saying, God, I need you to come in. My righteousness, my help, you're my transformation. Amen. Praise God. I'm raising my hand. Lord God, this morning, we just need your help. You're the one that changes and transforms us. It's not rules. It's not other stuff. That just leaves us with pride and self-righteousness. Lord God, it's only as we come before you humbly. And as your word speaks to us and points things out, Lord God, we don't get sarcastic. We don't blame other things. Experiences or saying as that was the reason. But God, it's just God. Come, change, transform me. I'm your son. I'm your daughter. And I need you to come into my life to make me the best that I can be for you and for your glory. Lord God, come by your power. Change, transform us, renew us. Do only what you can do, Lord God. Hallelujah. Father, go with us this day. Bless our week. Bless our time together with family today, Lord. Um, may you be there in a special way. And Lord God, whenever I talk about Father's Day or Mother's Day, Lord God, I always know that and aware that sometimes there's healing that needs to take place. Maybe we were the offender or maybe we're the one that has been offended or hurt. God, only you can heal. And you have always promised to give us the grace and the strength we need to forgive to extend forgiveness. Only, God, you can do that. Lord God, heal, I pray. Lord, we give you the thanks. We give you the praise. We ask in your name and everybody said, amen. Hey, God bless you today. Greet each other as you leave. Uh, shake a few hands. Get your gift, men, as you leave. Sierra's back there. She'll screen you. All right, God bless you this morning.